Dion, one hand pass to Simmer. Simmer into the Buffalo zone, leaves it for Taylor, down the left side, back to Simmer, he shoots, saved by Solve, and a score by the Kings! Who put it in? I believe uh, Dion or Simmer. They were both there. You're listening to All the Kings Men, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Kings. However, the views and opinions expressed are solely those of the host and other contributors. They do not necessarily represent those of the Los Angeles Kings. Now, here's your host, Jesse Cohen. Welcome back, Kings fans. My name is Jesse Cohen. This is All the Kings Men. We've got a lot of podcasts for you this week, Kings fans, including this installment of our 50 Kings series with Triple Crown line winger Charlie Simmer. Charlie was on the ice at the home opener with Marcel Dion and Dave Taylor in those all-star jerseys from the 80s. Uh, Great luck, great moment. Don't miss our other episode released earlier today with Ontario Rain Insider Lindsay Zarneski, Jack Jablonski, and Darren Pfeiffer from AM570's new blog, King's Corner. Plus, later in the week, we'll have a preview of the premiere of Kings Weekly with Jack A. Wilson, plus a post-game podcast from the Rain home opener this Friday night out in Ontario. You're not going to want to miss a single episode, so of course you'll want to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, however you listen to podcasts. Subscribing guarantees that you get each new episode the instant it's posted, and you'll never miss a moment. You can check the most recent episodes at lakings.com slash podcast, or just check the news tab at lakings.com. There's a lot of stuff, so we'll get right to it. Do it, Dave. As the Kings continue to celebrate our 50th anniversary, our 50 Kings series continues at LAKings.com. And our guest this week is one-third of the Triple Crown line, number 11, Charlie Robert Simmer. Charlie, thanks for doing this, man. Appreciate it. My pleasure. I might be more than one-third now with uh, retirement and all that, but uh, (laughs) let's just stay with that. I'm Dave Joseph along with Jesse Cohen, and, and obviously you're noted for your scoring, your power play prowess. And your mustache. And your mustache, uh, among other things. You signed an agreement with the Kings in 1977, but you spent half the season in Springfield. I want to hear all about Springfield first, Charlie Simmer. Well, it's, uh, you know, they say it's a, it's a great place to learn your your uh, minor league sport but uh, after being in my third year already spending time in the minors I said I thought that was a little bit too much so uh, but uh, the good news was uh, an old uh, an old uh, winger friend of mine Bob Barry was a coach so I figured uh, I'm gonna go down there work my butt off for him and uh, hopefully get a chance sometime during the season to get called up and uh, so I had a pretty good start to the year I got called up uh, one or two times, and I, I think I played a total in three games, a total of four shifts. So I, I was sent back down because I, I wasn't able to prove myself in those three shifts. So uh, it's definitely very frustrating. It's definitely a very frustrating, uh, you know, scenario where uh, you know you, you think you have an opportunity, but uh, you don't really get a chance. And that seems to be back then was you know your minor leaguer, you know you. you you know, I, I had some good time, uh, good numbers with some short periods of time with the Seals. And uh, so that was very frustrating to the point where, um, you know, it was like, well, what, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, uh, fortunately, Bobby got the head coaching job the next year up in L.A. So I figured I had a, a pretty good chance. I made the uh, all-star team in the American League. And, um, you know, I was put up some pretty big numbers. And uh, so coming to camp, I thought, well, this could be a pretty good opportunity. And uh Lo and behold, Bobby Barry's uh, best decision, he said at that time, was to send me back down to the minors. <laughs> so which definitely was very frustrating. Um, 
you know, and, and we joke about it now, but, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of times, even back then, there were money constraints. I was the only left winger on a two-way uh, scenario like that. So I really was not having a good year down in uh, Springfield that year. Hadn't got called up into January, and it was almost the point where I was thinking about uh, either going to Europe the next year or not playing hockey anymore because it was uh, it would have been into my fifth year and not really anything consistent in the NHL. So I got called up, uh, I remember January 13th in Detroit. Uh, L.A. was on the end of a long road trip, and uh, so they called me up, and, of course, Bob Berry meets me there, and I'm, I'm, I'm laughing, going, okay, where do you want me to sit on the bench? And he said, no, you're going to play a little bit tonight. So he put me on a line with a little-known guy named Marcel Dion and a, a poor college player named Davey Taylor, so he wanted me to revitalize those two guys, and I, I definitely did. And uh, the rest... The rest was history. I mean, um, you know, we went, we won there. We won six four. Our line scored all six goals. I got no points, but uh, someone had to back check all the time, anyways, because those two guys weren't going to do it. And uh, we went to Boston. We won there. I finally picked up an assist, and I was in Springfield. So I said, Bob, thanks for the opportunity. You know, I really enjoyed. At least you gave me a chance to play. And he says, Yeah, I'm going to have to send you back down. And I said, No, I understand that. And he said, No, get your stuff and then fly back out to L.A. So. In the uh, in the final thirty some games, I scored twenty some goals and uh, I think almost fifty points. And uh, the next year, I led the league in goals in spite of missing a month and a half. So I came from thirty games from quitting hockey to the next year leading the league in goals. So that's that's how finicky the game is, and uh, and I think that's how good our combination was with Mars and Davy. It just uh, definitely revitalized my career, and uh, and I think for the three of us, it was just uh, not only. Uh, a blessing on the ice, but off the ice as far as friendship. You scored 50 goals in 51 games. You're 11th all-time in Kings goal scoring. Uh, what was it about that combination of players that made you so prolific? Well, I mean, I think I was I was the glue that held them together. I mean, I mean, <laughs> you had this too short, you know, too small superstar, and you got a. And I think the label was for Davey was too skinny college player, and I was the too slow minor leaguer. So. Uh, it was it was just I think the, the chemistry of three different personalities, three different styles of play, that made it that much better. I think everybody knew what their role was. It was very unselfish hockey. Um, everybody says, "Well, Marcel did this. Marcel, you know, he shot too much. He did this." But we had it all together. Where I knew Marcel was shooting, and if he was going to shoot, I knew he was going to get it. If it wasn't in, there was going to be a rebound. And if uh, Davey was in the corner, I knew where to go in front of the net. So it was just, and it was nothing, anything we talked about. It was, there wasn't any plays on the board or there wasn't any, you know, strategy. It was like, you know, it was like a, a second sense where we thinking which each, uh, wherever the, every player was. And there were some remarkable plays that just seemed to develop out of nowhere. And, and then from that point on, we were able to, uh, you know, to use them again and say, well, this worked one time. Well, it worked again, especially when it came to power play time and things like that. But, I think it was just a matter of the three guys knowing that three of us together were better than one. Uh, and the key was Marcel. He was the superstar. And in Davey's characteristics and my characteristics complemented him nicely. In your time as a king, you had a 23% sh- uh, shooting percentage. Uh, and for your career, 32.75, which is a record. Uh, do you think of yourself as a pure goal scorer? I mean, that's that's an that's an absurd shooting percentage, Charlie. Well, my agent called and told me to shoot more. Yeah. Well, like that was my follow-up. Was why I didn't more goals, more. right? <laughs> yeah, yes. <absolutely>. Yes. 
yes. But uh, no, I, I just think it was, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I worked, uh, you know, working hard to the front of the net and uh, getting myself into good positions. Um, and let's face it, most of my goals were either from a foot out in front of the crease or maybe even behind the goalie sometimes. Uh, one or two long ones a year, uh, most against Pat Regans. <laughs> and uh, but it was just the chemistry of the line, and uh, you know, and I, 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 not that I had the most deadly shot, but I think it was very accurate, and I was, I wasn't afraid to go to areas that, uh, you know, you're going to get beat up a little bit, you're going to get knocked around, but uh, sooner or later, the puck shows up at the front of the net. I love that back-to-back 56 goal seasons in 79-80 and 80-81, 101 points, 105 points in those seasons. You had goals in 13 consecutive games. What do you remember about that 13 consecutive goal-scoring streak in 1980? That I was up to 10, and I didn't even realize it was a streak. (laughs) (laughs) How's that Um, possible? Well, we're playing out in L.A., and there's not a lot of, I mean, publicity like back east. And I think I'd been in, I got to 9 or 10. And I think back then the modern-day record was 10. Uh, I mean, obviously the overall record was uh, 16 by Punch Broadbent. I'll always remember that. But... um, we got into Buffalo and Toronto, of course, you know, that's the Mecca in the center of the universe, right? Toronto. And they're going to, in Toronto, if you score tonight, you tie the modern day record. And I go, modern day record of what? You know, <laughs> that type of thing. And they say, well, no consecutive goals. And I go, well, no, we're just having fun. We're just, you know, shooting and, and playing and, and having a good time. So I scored there and I scored the next night in, uh, in Buffalo to, to set the record 11. And then just seemed to you know, platoon off of that. And then got to 12, got to 13. And 14, I remember we were playing Minnesota. My old uh, California SEAL goaltender, Joe Malash, was uh, playing for Minnesota. And uh, he was laughing, going, anything at that. He says, I'm letting it in. I'm letting it in. You know? And he was just joking. I mean, he's, he's such a proud player. But So I didn't, uh, didn't score. And we got into um, an empty net. We're up by one. And Mars, of course, Bob Barry threw us out there, and I missed the net. And I couldn't get the, a good shot from there on. We're getting down. There's 15, 20 seconds left. Face off. He just pulled us off because he knew it wasn't going to happen. And then I went on to score in the next five games after that. So it would have been a nice uh, thing to get going at that point if I, you know, could have scored in game in game 14. But uh, I used one stick for nine of those games. Ten of those games, one fifty thirty Sherwood, and it's made of wood. So you can imagine how bendy and floppy it was by the end of that. But uh, I finally had to cash it in and then put in a new stick. But Pete Demers, our trainer, wouldn't let me use it in warm-up, wouldn't let me use it in practice. So it was kind of a kind of a, a neat uh, inu- uh, thing between me and Pete. Charlie, I still maintain that, that Sherwood PMP 5030 was the best stick ever made. Ever still is. I can still find a couple every once in a while. I'm still playing uh, a little bit of uh, I, I call it old timers hockey. I call it like legends hockey or elderly hockey. But uh, <laughs> every once in a while, I can find a fifty thirty. But they're not like they made them way back then. We just spoke to Terry Harper, who still plays uh, in a senior league uh, at seven. Oh, he's su- he's super senior for sure. <laughs> Uh, you got a chance. I'm to... I'm senior. I'm senior. He's super senior. <laughs> got it. Got it. <laughs> you got a chance to play in two NHL All Star games. Uh, LA is about to host its third All Star game. Do you have any All Star memories that stand out or uh, or experiences in those games? Yeah, one of the well, I mean that would definitely was a big All Star game in LA. But the, the, we were all, we were supposed to play the year before in Detroit, 
uh, the opening of the Joe Lewis and Marcel Davy and myself, that was 79-80. And, uh, you know, with the passing of Gordy Howe and seeing all the, the videos of, of the game and all that, I was just so disappointed that Davy and I were both hurt. Uh, we both had knee injuries and we missed a month, a month and a half of that season. And we missed playing with Gordy Howe in, in the Joe Lewis uh, for his last All-Star game. That, that would have been phenomenal. But the game in L.A., obviously, with uh, the hype and us, all three of us starting the game and skating out together, and, and that was what it was. It was three of us as a unit, and uh, we really liked that. Uh, Scotty Bowman, I remember working our butts off on morning skate. Here, everybody was out the night before, you know, celebrating, and he ran a full practice. He, he made sure we were dog-tired, and so we start the game, and the uh, first two shifts, the triple crown line's minus two. And you're just looking at Scotty going, he's figuring out how can I bench the triple crown line in L.A. in the All-Star game because they're minus two and not playing very well tonight. <laughs> but we, we regained our composure. We, we lost the game by one, I think. But Mike Luit was the uh, MVP for sure. He was unbelievable in goal. But uh, that was just a huge memory. And then uh, playing as a, an alternate in the New Jersey game was 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 a good time because it was you know getting near the end of my career not quite at the end but uh, to get another ch- chance after after especially after breaking my leg and and making a comeback like that was fulfilling but uh, I'm really looking forward to this All Star game in L A and uh, being able to to watch it and and really feel the excitement of where hockey is coming L A from you know where where Teddy uh, Terry Harper and those guys were to our era to Wayne's era and to, of course now where they've got the Stanley Cups it's just been a a phenomenal growth and it's been fun for me to watch Charlie the life of a hockey player is filled with agents and coaches and trainers you know you get shipped around you get told what to do where to go what time to be where um triple crown line obviously played a huge role in expanding um LA's awareness of hockey but I'm curious Whose decision was it to record an album uh, and to name it Pardon My Misconduct? Well, it was mine, of course, because I was the most talented <laughs> of all three. Sure. But no, um, actually, it was Alan Thicke. Um, really? Alan Thicke wrote, Growing pains. Well, he, he, he was a huge hockey fan, obviously, coming yeah. from northern Ontario. Gloria Loring was his wife at that time, and uh, we were all big uh, big fans of his and their, uh, his shows. And, of course, they were big hockey fans. And so he approached Marcel, excuse me, in, in regards to recording the song. We said, what do you mean recording a song? So I wrote two songs. He said, uh, Rangers are going to do one side. They've already agreed to it, but I want you three to do the other side. And it was for, uh, uh, what was theirs, uh, Hockey Sock Rock in the rain with the Rangers, and we were excused my misconduct. And uh, it was all hockey, hockey-based songs. Um, and it was for the benefit of juvenile diabetes. Um, a guy named Robin Thicke, of course, everybody knows him now. One of uh, Alan's uh, sons had uh, had juvenile diabetes back then, so he wanted to make an awareness and a little fun, a fun fundraiser. And uh, so, of course, we we agreed. We got into the studio. They already had the mix already done, and fortunately, had a lot of good backup singers and a lot of uh, mu- music that could really drown out a French accent and and a bad country singing Canadian kid from Northern Ontario. And uh, and then so we, we end up selling these records on for charity, and I know my family bought boxes of them and sold in Northern Ontario. And from my understanding, when gold in Canada, so they sold about a half a million copies of this forty-five. Um, you know, way before MTV, way before the videos, and then of course we made some videos uh, with Valerie Harper and uh, went on a couple of TV shows. So 
uh, it was it was kind of fun. I mean, uh, halfway through the day, we had to go out and get beer because we weren't sounding very good, and we actually thought we weren't sounding very good. So, um, of course, every time you get a little bit loose, you actually think you're better than you are. So that's what we thought, and you know, we loosened up the, the hips and everything, and it was a lot of fun. But I mean, it was for such a great cause too, and uh, you know, those are little little perks that you remember, and everybody seems to bring it up at a at a draft party or a, a, a hockey a charity event. They always bring up the music, so it's a uh, Looking at the wardrobe and at the lack of moves out there was was pretty hilarious. Charlie, other than uh, our great head of hair, we have something in common. Um, we both played at the the uh, Sioux Gardens because you remember the Sioux Greyhounds, where you racked up ninety nine points one season in your one season in the Sioux. Can you tell me what it was like to take me back to to juniors and playing for the Sioux Greyhounds at that time? Well, I was a I, I was a late developer. I was in an area where late developers, and if anybody's watched me play, obviously my skating ability was not my my trick to the to the National Hockey League. But it was always a dream of mine to play. I, I grew up in Terrace Bay, Ontario, way up in northern, uh, three hundred miles north of the Sioux, and really there wasn't much at that time exposure up there. A friend, of, uh, an ex coach of mine, was a, a scout in Kenora. <coughs> excuse me, in uh, tier two. So he recruited me there. So I spent two years in Kenora, had some good uh, seasons there. And then, uh, you know, as a 19 year old, very difficult to make junior hockey or major junior hockey, but the Sioux was just starting up again, along with Sudbury where they'd been out of the OHL and into the Northern Ontario hockey league tier two. So it was only their second year back. And Angie Bambaco was the GM there. And uh, he took a big chance on a 19 year old. He uh, drafted me in the 29th round uh, in the amateur draft. So figure that out mathematically. 22 teams in the league times 30. I was drafted 600 and something in that league. So it was, it was kind of hilarious now that I made it. And Angie Bimbaco, uh Lord love him, he's still alive. And we always joke about that. He says, he says don't worry. He says, I drafted you then because I knew no one scouted you up there and we had you. But, uh, you know, I was able to make uh, the majors, a major junior as a 19-year-old just, just playing the one year. And uh, it was exciting. It was uh you know, to play in a, the first big, big-time league. We play in Maple Leaf Gardens against the Marlies. And, and now you look at some of the great players that are in the league that draft where we had a lot of fun uh, competing against each other. And, uh, and I always remember every time you scored, there was a, uh, a cutout of a Greyhound, like on Greyhound buses. It would it was on like a close clothesline above, high above the rink, and it would slide all the way across and pull all the way back. And uh, uh, it, was, it was one of those old barns that you really enjoyed playing in. And, and Bumbacos, uh, I grew up in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, which uh, there's Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, and Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, which is just across the bridge. Uh, so I played in the Sioux a lot growing up, and Bumbacos was actually a sporting goods store run by Angie, I believe, and that's where we got all our, yeah, all right, of our equipment right, when right I was across a kid. The, right across the street, yeah. So that'd be the, the morning after practice, go in there and have coffee with Angie, and he'd tell you how bad we were the night before, yeah. how good we were, and... Uh, but uh, he's such a great personality, and the, the Esposito brothers own the team at that time. Phil and Tony, they're from the Sioux, and their dad were the major shareholders in the team. So it was good to get that exposure with uh, with uh, Phil and Tony about you know about the NHL and uh, and what it was all about. When you first came to LA, kid from Terrace Bay, did you think hockey would last here and prosper as much as it had? I mean. Wayne Gretzky had a huge effect on that, and you look at now, kids are, are, you know, from the Southwest are playing in the National Hockey League. Did you think it would have that kind of a lasting impact when you were here? 
I really did. I mean, I, I uh, you know, we went, we went around then, of course, then we had to go do our own promotions. You know, we, we, uh, you know, we went to street fairs. We went to uh, minor rinks. We went everywhere to help try and promote the game because we thought it was one of the great, I mean, we knew it was the greatest game in the whole world. And anytime I got uh, people to the game, uh, they were instant hockey fans. I, mean, I lived in Manhattan Beach and, you know, I'd invite people to the game, get them tickets, and I'd meet them after for a drink and, um, which would be a protein shake, of course, back yes, then. Yes, yes. And, uh, we, and then, you know, we'd have a good talk about the game. I said, how, they said how exciting it is and what, you know, what's this, what's that. I mean, it's a crazy game. They've never seen it before. And then, and then they look at you and say, well, what do you do for a living? And, uh, you know, so, no, that's my job. He said, that's your, you know, and that's how it was back then. But when you looked at the kids in Culver Ice Rink, and I can't remember how many rinks were there at that time, but the kids program were phenomenal and, and they would be as competitive as back East kids up until about age 12. And then it just seemed to, to fall off because the training ability wasn't there. The, the competition wasn't there. The coaching wasn't there. Cause remember a lot of the coaches were just the guy's dads that would, you know, look quickly, look in a book and, and put a drill out there. And so when you got to 12 and 13, it was a, it was, it was a tough decision because the main competition would be, would have been Denver, St. Louis, and so the cost at that point would have been phenomenal for them. So, and then something about surfing and girls too came into play about that age. So it seemed to fall <laughs> off after that. But I mean, I think through, um, you know, what we did and then what Wayne did, and of course bringing now you brought in the sharks, you bring in the ducks, um, and you see the high school programs that all these organizations have done, and you can see why the game is so exciting. Wayne brought a, a level of excitement. And then, of course, when the Kings win two Stanley Cups, I mean that's that's the best you can do is when you get those cups, you're you you you're instantly you know part of the community because you're you know basically a world champion and um, in your league and uh, and that's exciting again. So now more people are watching and more people are able to play because of the programs that the professional teams have set up and it's uh, it's really great to see some of these young players now playing in the NHL. Charlie, you played up and down the state of California from Oakland to Los Angeles and also a stint as a player coach in San Diego. What did you think of hockey in San Diego and did you ever consider coaching as a as a post-playing career? Well, I mean, San Diego was just our, my first year was the Central League and they were in there and, and we had Jack Tex Evans as our coach and he used to play in San Diego and there was a couple players that I played with with the Seals. I mean, that Central League was a, a phenomenal proving ground because back then there was, you know, there were six, uh, well, expansion now would have been 12. There would have been 14 or 15 teams only. So there were some really good quality players playing in organizations like that. So it was, uh, uh, it was like going to LA in the early years, like uh, going to Oakland in the early years. You knew you had to get out and promote the game, get people to come see the game. They're going to love it. And, uh, and I think it's a great, uh, it's a great market. I mean, you got sunshine, you got hockey. Um, what else could you ask for? And then with the success of all the, all the franchises in California, you throw in Phoenix now, they're going to be a lot better once they get their building uh, resolved. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it, it's a sport for everybody. It's not just a cold weather sport. And that's really neat to see you know, all these uh, fans coming out and really supporting uh, the teams. And an and example, I, I remember when I was doing the broadcasting, um, I'd come back up into the Staples Center and, and people would wait for you to sign an autograph and then you remember the person. Of course, he'd, he'd aged a little bit just like I had, but <laughs> he would have brought his son and then his son's child. So you're looking at three generations that I've been able to sign autographs for, and that's what it's all about. And when you see... Um, a sport being able to, you know, to have that much passion 
in an area like LA or San Diego or Oakland or Phoenix, then, then you know you've got your foot right in the door and it's, uh, it's successful. And as far as coaching, I'm not very good at it, I guess. I, uh, I was in a couple years of minor league coaching, which, which I really enjoyed. I think, um, I think uh, you know, minor league coaching was a lot of fun because there were a lot of young guys really eager to learn. Uh, I think when you get up into the, into the National Hockey League, you gotta you got to be kind of a different person, I think. It, it takes a lot of time commitment. It takes, um, you know, you have to be a different characteristic, personality, characteristic, and and I don't, you know, and sometimes you got to be a jerk, and I don't, you know, it's tough being a jerk sometimes. But uh, I think that's why I end up in broadcasting and enjoyed it so much that, uh, you know, I was able to still part- participate in the game, uh, get on the road, talk to the players, and be as close to playing and coaching as you can. But at the end of every game, I could put the headphones down, win or lose, uh, I was okay. The game was over. For half a century, the Los Angeles Kings have been bringing excitement, passion, and Stanley Cup glory to Southern California delighting our deeply loyal fan base by being a leader in incredible events and employing the greatest players in NHL history. The legacy continues as we celebrate our 50th anniversary, striving for innovation in a constant pursuit of excellence with a first-class commitment to our fans and partners and with an unmatched pledge to improving our community. We are all Kings.